I'm Dr. Becky, and this is Good Inside. You know, I often will tell people, well, you got to like, you sort of balance a little bit. Like sometimes that's first moments you're pregnant. It's like almost exciting. It's like, oh, like now I'm pregnant. Like, ooh, all these new things I get to do, like not drink coffee and like, oh, I have to be careful about the fish, you know, and I, and that's, that's like, that can be part of the experience and kind of, it could be like in a positive way, but it can also then move into this like sort of self-sacrificing, like that's how you become a good mom. You're a good mom if you drank coffee while pregnant. You're a good mom if you got that epidural. And you're a good mom if you didn't breastfeed. And there's data to prove it. My guest is Emily Oster, the economist and author of several books on pregnancy and parenting. In case you missed it the first time, this is an episode that you need to hear. And I'm so excited to reshare it with you right after this. If you're anything like me, mornings can be a real struggle. Between making breakfast, prepping lunches, and making sure our kids actually brush their teeth, the last thing we have time for is a kid having a meltdown about what they're wearing. This is where Garanimals comes in. Garanimals is the original mix-and-match clothing brand for babies and toddlers in sizes newborn through 5T. Their easy-to-pair and fun-to-wear styles empower kids to dress themselves, boosting their self-confidence and independence. Oh, and making mornings power struggle free for us parents. That is a win-win. You can find all of their fun mix-and-match styles from their new spring collection in Walmart stores and on walmart.com. So here's to easier mornings, confident kids, and parents reclaiming their sanity. Here's to Garanimals. I want to make sure you have all the information for my Deeply Feeling Kid program. I've gotten so many questions from parents that essentially say, hey, my kid sounds like a deeply feeling kid. Hey, this program you do sounds exactly like the program I would need. But my kid is neurodivergent. But my kid is ADHD. So I'm just worried it won't apply or won't end up being for me. I totally understand that worry. And I know with conviction, it's going to help. Kids with ADHD and deeply feeling kids, there's so much overlap. They both are oriented towards sensory overstimulation. They both tend to shut down when they actually need help. For both kids, typical parenting strategies tend not to work. They actually escalate things and can kind of overwhelm these kids further. I can't wait for you to start the DFK workshop. I actually would bet in the first 10 minutes you say, oh my goodness, this is my kid. I finally understand what's going on. And then you'll be equipped with a set of strategies you can implement in your home right away. You can get more info in the link in show notes or at goodinside.com. I can't wait to see you there. Maybe just to start, what led you into kind of looking at or questioning maybe (laughs) pregnancy and parenthood recommendations? In some ways, the answer is quite simple to that, which is that I got pregnant. Um, and I think like a lot of women, I was lucky. I had not had a lot of sustained interaction with like medicine up to that point. And I, you know, as a person who makes a lot of my own decisions and feels like I have a lot of autonomy and information and most of the large choices that I had made in my life were really things where 
I got a chance to sit down and think about the way I wanted to make that choice. And because I'm a person who loves data, often those choices involved data uh, or numbers in some way. And then I got pregnant and I found that the way that pregnancy was approached was pretty evidence not evidence-free is the wrong word, but I wasn't being given the kind of autonomy to evaluate my own choices with evidence that I had been used to in all other spheres. There was this moment, like at my first prenatal visit, when I must have been like 10 weeks pregnant, where they just like on the way out, almost they handed me these lists. It was like, here's a list of things not to eat. And it was incredibly long. You know, it was like hot dogs and sushi and, and you know, and it's also like cigarettes. And it's like, surely these things can't all be the same amount of bad. Like it can't be that oysters and cigarettes are like the same bad. And they certainly aren't going to be bad for the same reason. And that kind of experience of just like me being like, but wait, 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 like, can you tell me more? And being like, well, no, just there's a list, like read off the list. The feeling of sort of things, the decision-making being removed from kind of my control and from my ability to make the decision in a way that I was comfortable and happy with. I think that was really where this started. And of course, like, can I have oysters is perhaps not like the most important question, but there were many other important questions. And also like, I like oysters, I particularly like coffee, which is also on that list. So that was really where I started. You know, right away, I feel like we're starting with something that on the surface is so simple, like, okay, I'm pregnant for nine months. Like, do I have to have coffee? Like whenever you isolate these decisions one at a time, I feel like it's always, it's always hard for me to choose something that increases risk, even if it's like a tiny bit. So individually, you're like, okay, oysters, sushi, certain cheeses. But like, I feel like there is, I'm just thinking about this now in response to what you said, like these two things I see, which is like, risk or like doing whatever you can to maximize safety of your child. And then on the other side, there's like, but I like coffee. I really love having sushi, right? Like there's like love and desire and wants for a woman who's pregnant. And then there's, you know, maximizing safety. Yes. And I think often the way it's framed makes it like the act of not having the coffee is the act of being a good parent. And this comes up in early parenting also, that it is it is almost the fact that you like it and are giving it up for your baby is a way to sort of feel to yourself or to others like you are sort of doing it right, like you are willing to sacrifice. And, and that gets us into a place where with something like coffee, if you dive into the data there, just really no evidence that there's any risk to sort of moderate amounts of coffee. So there almost isn't a gain there. There isn't a gain on that side, but I still think it can feel like, well, I would just, just to be on the absolute safest side, you know, I am going to be willing to give this up. And I feel for me that goes across many areas in parenting. I a hundred percent agree. But what you're saying, which I find really compelling, it's almost like what makes us feel best as a newly pregnant person is I am starting my journey of self-sacrifice right now. And this is what good moms do. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And I think it's particularly, it's actually particularly true with the first one. I think often when people get pregnant a second time, they're like, yeah, yeah, of course I'm going to have some coffee. You know, I often will tell people, well, you got to like, you sort of balance a little bit. Like sometimes that's first moments you're pregnant. It's like almost exciting. It's like, oh, like now I'm pregnant. Like, 
ooh, all these new things I get to do, like not drink coffee and like, oh, I have to be careful about the fish, you know, and I, and that's, that's like, that can be part of the experience and kind of, it could be like in a positive way, but it can also then move into this like sort of self-sacrificing, like that's how you become a good mom. Yeah, this, this martyrdom, right? And I think if I'm on a mission to do anything, it has almost like less to do with kids and more of like changing this idea that motherhood is martyrdom. But right away, there is almost this like excitement we get. Where it's like, oh, I can't eat that, you know, or no, I can't drink that. And we're living in this idea that being a good mom means putting your own pleasure and your own desires to the side for the benefit of someone else. And ironically, I mean, I don't know if you've looked into the data on this, but I'm just going to venture. Like, I can't imagine data supports that, like, self-sacrifice is, like, great for parents. Like, that that's, like, there's a lot of, like, that is just so good for moms and babies. No, data does not support that. And, you know, <laughs> it does not support that. In particular, you know, sort of even on the other side, in some of the kinds of things we talk about, not so much coffee, but particularly in sort of early parenting, some of the kinds of sacrifices that we see in this space can be, you know, triggers for postpartum depression, for postpartum anxiety, mm. for people kind of moving from, you know, happy to not happy. And then that actually does have some not positive, but, you know, potentially negative impacts on parental functioning. And so, you know, in some sense, when we think about the idea of self-sacrifice as a positive value, it puts the weight on only one piece of the functioning or one piece of what we're trying to achieve and not on, you know, how do we structure a family in a way that kind of everybody is happy and everybody is productive and everybody is getting the things that they need. And when I was talking about crib sheet, I sometimes I would say, you know, like parents are people too, um, which I think we sometimes forget. Yeah. Is this the same in other countries? Is this like an American phenomenon? This kind of, you know, this massive, starting, let's say, with pregnancy, if we stay in that, and I definitely want to move post-pregnancy, too, with you, but pregnancy, the list, the no this, the no cheese, the no glass of wine, the no coffee. I'm thinking, like, sushi, a glass of wine, and a cup of coffee, like, those are, like, a lot of my pleasurable foods. Like, my, it's, like, almost like if chocolate cake was, like, listed, too. Luckily, that, would be, that would be, that would be Yeah, they, they've let us have that. But, like, is this <laughs> true now. in other countries? The list is not the same. So, you know, there's some things that are on everybody's list, but, you know, there are differences in the kinds of things that are restricted. So the French tend to be more relaxed about cheese. Uh, the Japanese tend to be more relaxed about sushi. But then there are other and things. the Americans tend to be relaxed about chocolate cake. Chocolate cake, exactly. <laughs> Doritos, you know, we're good, we're good. But then you get other things where people will have like sort of different kinds of like, you can't have ice or you can't have two of the windows open. Huh. Right. It's like everyone has this long list. Some are, yeah. some are the same. Yeah, the word like preciousness keeps coming to mind. Like there's this message and, and I think I see this all the time with parents who are parenting their toddlers or older kids. It's the same thing. It's like if I do one thing wrong, I've like messed up parenthood mm -hmm. forever. And all of these restrictions, there's such rigidity in that way. There's rigidity. And I, I, I think it's, you know, partly... It's just, I think it, it does come from a good place of people wanting to do, you know, sort of wanting to do the the right thing um, and wanting to, you know, to like do it 
to do it right. And the idea that there is a single right way to do this or a way to kind of make it work, to make it successful. And some of parenting is really about giving up control and recognizing that you can make all the right choices or all good choices, and you can still end up in a situation in which things go, unfortunately, go wrong. And and that's... um, I think part of the the byproduct of some of these issues is that people often blame themselves. People have a miscarriage. They they'll ask me, you know, well, what like what did I do? And the answer is like nothing. You know, a huge share of first trimester miscarriages are just a result, like not not like fifty percent, but like ninety percent are a result of chromosomal issues that you never could have done anything about. And the idea that people come and they say, well, you know, what did I do? Was it, did I take, I shouldn't have run or, you know, I should have had a cup of coffee or, you know, what about this? You know, I walked through this field and could that, you know, like all of these things where we get into a place where once you, once you accept the idea that there's a right way to do it, then if it doesn't go right, it must be that you've done something wrong. And that's a big challenge. And I think there's so many of us, and I think so many listeners right now probably can identify, yes, when I struggle with something in my life, when I have like a big hard feeling about something, my first thought is self-blame. Like I made this happen. I did this. And I think as women, we're like, a lot of us are especially prone to this. But it is interesting that the self-blame is always about not being careful and like self-sacrificial enough. Like, I don't know if someone has about, like, no one was like, I had a miscarriage and I just, I wasn't having enough sex because if I was having more sex, I would have been like happier. If I would have been happier, I would have been more hospitable. No one's like, I should have had sushi because if I had sushi, I would have like been so much more satisfied that day and my baby would have felt that elation. It's just kind of interesting. It's always like, I didn't restrict enough. Yeah. I had not even thought about it, but you're absolutely right. Like there's when you said those things, I was like, that's a crazy thing to say because I've never heard anyone say that. But of, of course, I'm not sure why they wouldn't. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what, what's what's wrong with your sex argument. It's just as good as the, you know, all the other things that people say. And every time I have these conversations, it's like I, I feel like I learn so much about how deep these stories are about like what motherhood is, how deep the story of motherhood as martyrdom like really goes, because as soon as you're pregnant, there's almost like we're signaling our virtue. Like, oh, I don't eat that. I don't do that because I'm a good mom. I'm a good mom from the start because I am willing to say no to things that give me personal pleasure. And when you do get pregnant, same too. And the OBs, it's all about like, here's everything you could do to minimize risk even if the data doesn't support it, to babies. Like no doctors. Like here's what you need to do from the start to make sure you still stay in touch with all the parts of you that pre-existed pregnancy. <laughs> I just want to say, I think there are doctors who do that, but I don't think that they're, I don't think that that it's, it is not, it is not the norm. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not where the focus of those, of those interactions are for sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, for everyone listening right now to think about a decision you've made for your family. Maybe it was back in pregnancy. Maybe it's, you know, a long time since pregnancy. Maybe it's the amount of screen time you let your kid watch today, right? Or maybe it's whether you let a kid have a sleepover or not, or how many after school activities your kids do, whatever the decision is. I really think it's like the ultimate grounding exercise. Just remind yourself, like, I'm making decisions that feel best for my kid and my family and my neighbor over there is actually doing the exact same thing. Like it might look totally different on the surface, but internally, like we're actually doing the same thing. And 
their kid who watches less, you know, screen time or more, like they're no better or worse. Like we're each trying to make decisions for our family. That's such a good message because it's so easy to both judge and also to sort of feel judged or to second guess in a way that can promote a tremendous amount of anxiety. Yes. And, and strife and just, you know, I, I say this to myself a lot too, when I feel that like threat of comparison, it's like, that's not a referendum on my parenting. That parent's decisions is not at all a referendum on my decisions. And I feel like pushing away other people's decisions in a way so you can see them and then you can be curious about them when we don't have distance. It really feels like, an, you know, an evolutionary threat, yeah. right? Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> hey, Good Inside listeners. So sometimes with parenting, a podcast does the trick. And sometimes with parenting, we need a bit more. And I wanted to be sure you knew that we're set up to help you in those trickier times. The Good Inside membership platform is your parenting encyclopedia, coupled with a community of parents and experts you trust, which means that no matter what you're going through, we've got you covered. And then we take it a step further, because I know that we're people who don't just want to solve a problem and return to baseline. We want to raise our baselines, right? And this is what we really do, together reduce triggers, learn to set boundaries, and access that sturdy leader that I know is inside all of us. It's all there when you're looking for that next step. And until then, please do check out goodinside.com slash podcast. Scroll down to the Ask Dr. Becky section at the bottom and let me know what you want to talk about in future podcast episodes. If you're a parent of a tween or teen, this next message is for you. We are living in a digital first world. And we're raising our older kids amidst an unprecedented mental health crisis. We know that the landscape has changed and raising tweens and teens has never been harder. Plus, the data around us and the news coverage is staggering. And we know that reports of anxiety and depression amongst tweens and teens is at an all-time high. We know all of this is true And still, I don't want to spread a message of fear. Not at all. I want to spread a message of empowerment and hope. Because after all, here at Good Inside, we're really on a mission to help you be a sturdy leader so you can raise sturdy kids. And I know it's never too late to start this journey. I am so excited to let you know that we are extending our support and resources in Good Inside membership to parents of tweens and teens. From how to navigate phones and social media to how to support your teen through insecurity and anxiety, we equip parents with exactly what they need to help their teens successfully navigate through this turbulent world. Good Inside membership is now supporting parents of kids ages 0 through 18. And what will you get? You'll have access to a digital, searchable library of short videos, scripts, and workshops for every single in-the-moment problem and struggle you might be facing. You get access to a safe, private, away-from-social-media community monitored by trained Good Inside coaches. 
you also have access to ongoing support groups with other parents led by Good Inside coaches to talk about the unique struggles of the teenage years. It's all available at goodinside.com. I can't wait to see you inside. Okay, so I want to transition into breastfeeding. Like, so all of this, this stuff with breastfeeding, like just, I'm just going to say, go, 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 go. Your, your turn. Yeah, go. So breastfeeding uh, is, I think, in some ways, the most significant early parenting example of this kind of self-sacrificing thing. And when I was writing Crib Sheet, this was like the biggest place I wanted to start was just to dive into the evidence before we get into preference and so on, just like dive in the evidence behind a lot of the things we get told about breastfeeding, many of which are very extreme. So I, you know, I pulled up together like a list of the benefits that, that are, are listed. And there's some of the things you're familiar with, better health, better antibodies, you know, higher IQ, less serious illness later, lower obesity. And then you'll get into like weight loss, free birth control, like have better friendships. I don't even know what that means. What's wrong with your friends? You know, like don't get different <laughs> friends is what I think. Um, so I, I, you know, I really dug into that. And I think part of the issue in the data there is that there are a lot of differences between women who breastfeed and women who do not on a bunch of other dimensions. So when we study those problems, it's really difficult to separate correlation from causality. And much of the evidence we have is really problematic for that reason. When we look at the best evidence, which is typically from either like the one randomized trial or more likely sibling studies where they compare two siblings within the same family, you see some evidence of these early life benefits, like better digestion, you know, less gastrointestinal illness, you know, those effects are not enormous, but they're definitely, they seem to be there. Maybe some effects on ear infections, but you don't see compelling evidence of many of these longer term things like IQ, obesity, height. It doesn't help you lose weight, but like, sorry. Um, you know, so when I wrote Crib Sheet, then I sort of went there, discussed that, tried to, you know, get people on the same page about like, what is the truth? When people say breast is best, like based on the data, I guess that's not, it's not wrong in the sense that there are some, you know, small benefits that show up in the data. But when we see people say breast is best, they imply a thing which is far beyond the data. And it just really makes people, honestly, just really sometimes makes people sad. Like the thing that made me most compelled to write Crib Sheet was the emails I would get from dads. The emails I would get from people that would say, like, my wife really liked your first book. We have our first kid. You know, breastfeeding is not going well. She's so upset. And, you know, she's really, like, like it was just really, really hard. And I feel like if you told her it wasn't that big a deal, like, maybe she would feel better about herself. And I think that's kind of, like, that. that's crushing. Yeah. And, you know, I think what I see over and over from parents and especially moms is the kind of looking for one thing and the one thing keeps changing to kind of prove I'm a good parent. Like I'm a good parent. Mm -hmm. And early on, like there's just not that much. There's not that many options. There's not that much you know? to do. They don't do there, much. There's not that much to do. Like there's not, you know, like they're not even smiling, but you know, there, there's how do I feed my baby, which is the essence. Like how am I sustaining this child? And there's like one thing, or maybe there's two. There's how they sleep. Nobody's baby sleeping that well. And then there's how you're feeding. And 
What always strikes me about data and breastfeeding, this was, I thought about this a lot even before Crib Sheet came out, was like, you know what I know as a human without looking at any study is mothers feeling depleted, exhausted, resentful, shitty about themselves is not good for a mom. It is not good for a baby and it is not good for a baby's connection. Like the idea that, whatever is in breast milk would be more important to a baby than all of that. Like, I just, I always remember thinking, like, I don't buy it. And that's not a way of saying, I don't think people should breastfeed. That's not a way of saying that when it gets hard, you should give it up. I'm not, I'm not saying that so concretely, but I know in my bones that if a mom is so overwhelmed and depleted in that way, there's no way she's forming a strong bond with her child. Yes. And I I think this idea of elevating this one behavior, which is sort of maybe another way to say what you're saying, like we're elevating one behavior as if everything is in economics, we'd say lexicographic, that like there's, there's one thing that's the most important and everything else is almost like completely secondary. And if you do the one thing, everything else is, there's nothing else to worry about. And if you don't do the one thing, it's basically over. And that is not true of the data on breastfeeding. And as you say, there are many compelling reasons that people would choose not to breastfeed, including they don't want to. And that I think is a piece of this where we're often we'll see, you know, people say, well, I like I could, you know, you ha- somehow have to be, there has to be an excuse. I couldn't, you know, I, I, I didn't have enough supply. I tried really hard, you know, but as opposed to just being like, well, I didn't, it would, just didn't think it would work for my family, which is actually like a completely legitimate reason not to choose to, to breastfeed. On the flip side, and this is, I think, a frustration that's perhaps u- unique in some ways to, to the U.S., there is, maybe not unique, but different than some places, say, in Europe, that we are both very pushy about breastfeeding and also tremendously unsupportive in other ways. Like actually breastfeeding is quite hard. Like it's not super intuitive. I thought it was just going to be like, you just like put the baby in the vicinity and it just kind of does it. But actually like maybe that works for some people that didn't, you know, that didn't work for me. And so we have this activity, which is difficult to get started. And we have very little support for new parents outside of the hospital, very little like home visiting or whatever you would need to make that work. And then we have like basically no support for breastfeeding in public. And so it's kind of like, you know, the most important thing you can do for a baby is breastfeed, but put those boobs away because nobody wants to see that. And it's like, and get back to work because and get back to no work. Um, you can pump in this, uh, in this dirty bathroom. I'm sorry that there's Maybe. no plug, but right. just buy more batteries. <laughs> it's really messed up. Right. And I, I know, right. Like it was, you know, then there's like, oh, and by the way, if you can breastfeed up to age two, that's also best, right? Like that extra little cherry on top. And, you know, one of the things that I think is just always helpful, whether, you know, you have a young baby or a teenager is the sentence like, I'm a good mom who, and then you end the sentence with something that societally has been deemed something that, quote, good moms don't Mm do to like hold those two truths at once. And I just want to say, and I think I've said this elsewhere, and, you know, I did not choose to breastfeed my kids for that long, like at all, right? None of them got that much breast milk. And it was a combination of factors, but I want to name one of the factors. I didn't like it. I wasn't into it. It wasn't my thing. I didn't want to do it. 
And it's so true. It's like, oh, but you tried this or, oh, did you have a supply issue? Like you have to prove your sacrifice to get permission from the world to not breastfeed. And that is that is some fucked up shit. And I just want to say on air, I am a good mom who chose not to breastfeed her kids for that long at all, period. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And I will say, you know, sometimes people... so. I knew all this stuff about breastfeeding, all this data, like before I had my first kid because I had done it for something I had looked into for research and so on. And so I knew all this and I really knew it. And I still killed myself to try to breastfeed my first kid. And I really, like, I did not, I mean, eventually we made it work, but like, it was not an experience that I look back on and think like, I'm really glad that I spent so very many hours walking up and down the hallway like bouncing my kid because that was the only way I could get her to latch. Like, I wish that I had not done that. I wish I had sort of let myself off that. Let myself off the hook is again, like I'm, it's so quick. You're so quick to get so into fast. that. Like, Emily, I, like, what are we doing? What are we doing? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I'm on this podcast. No, and, and, and let me, let horrible. me, a hundred percent. Let me backtrack and just say, by the way, like I'm, uh, I also like was in a horrible guilt shame spiral for my first child. Like a hundred percent, me too. And I very much felt like I had to talk to everyone about my schedule and then how I have to pump after. And this, I had to prove my worth through self-sacrifice and proving that this couldn't be good for anyone. And that might be true. And like, I just do. I think so many things in motherhood goes back to the way women have distanced ourselves from the start from our desire. Mm-hmm. As if like desire is like anti-female, like have it. And like the desire of like, I don't want to. I don't want to breastfeed. It feels very radical. And there's this flip, which is like, if people want to do this, we should provide more support. Somehow we've sort of hit a place where we don't support it. And yet we sort of force it into people who would like to do it kind of aren't able to really give it a chance to kind of, because it is hard at the beginning. And for many people, you push through that and actually it's something that you enjoy and it really works for you and, and so on. And yet, you know, for many people, it, it, uh, it, you know, for at least some people it doesn't work and it's not something that you necessarily want to do for two years. Exactly. And, and yes, like this is not an anti-breastfeeding message. I think the message is good moms get epidurals and good moms don't get epidurals and good moms breastfeed and good moms don't breastfeed. Right? And then no one of these choices is a choice that makes you a good mom or not. Like that hanging any idea of sort of good parenting on a choice is a huge mistake. I think that that's exactly right. So we got through pregnancy. We've gotten through breastfeeding. So l- let's bring things a little bit to the current day with maybe some slightly older kid topics. One of the questions is about like choice frameworks, sending your kids back to school amidst what seems like, you know, increased gun violence, um, things like that. How do you think through these decisions and and things that maybe have seemingly, you know, are, are definitely lower risk, but still feel like hard choices. Like how many after school activities do I do? And, you know, when do I give my kid a phone? Like any of those, I would love to hear how you think through those yeah. things. So I spend a lot of time in family firm on this kind of like a decision framework around big choices, hard choices. And I think there's a, a few sort of insights in there. And so, so kind of one is that I really encourage people to try to be very specific about what their question is. I think often mm. when we're, asking ourselves these hard questions, we frame them almost as like, should I do this or not? So should I like, you know, should I send my kid back to school 
or not. And, and you know, you got to recognize like or not's not a schooling outcome. You know, that it's not a or not's not a place you go to school uh, during the day. And and if you are going to make that choice in a way that is thoughtful, you really do need to say what the two options are. And so I call that framing the question that I think we're often sort of reluctant to to frame the question in part because or not seems great. Like or not could be almost anything, right? Like or not or not could be like an amazing outcome. Whereas the school is just like a known a known quantity, but of course or not is actually it's not a, not a choice. So how would you change that question? So, you know, in the case of something like extracurriculars, like people say, "Well, should I do this activity or or not?" In some ways, that's that's sort of well-framed, but I think you want to say, like, should I do this activity or another activity? Should I do this, this sport or another sport? Or is it this sport or theater? Or is it this sport or nothing? And that, I think, makes the questions often more tractable because you are now facing an actual choice, which you can then move forward on. And I think a lot of the decision tools are really about giving that decision the attention it needs, think about what are the trade-offs, what are the risks, what are the benefits on either side, then making a decision and trying to move on. So I think other than the sort of two big mistakes I see people make here are not framing the question as two concrete alternatives and then actually not ever really making a decision. Like just saying, should we do baseball or not? And then kind of dribbling it out until the decision is either made for you because you forgot to sign up or, you know, at the last minute you just like sign up because like your kid is standing over you and bothering you and you actually haven't really thought about it. Yeah. I can struggle with things in that way. And my husband always says to me when I'm struggling with the decision, that one side of how I frame a question is like known risk. Mm -hmm. And the other one is like always all upside because like that's what you do when you don't name the other side. Then you're not realizing that the other one has some known risk too. But as long as you don't quantify it or name it, it just has infinite upside and no risk. So I think that that's really, really powerful. Next thing, and and maybe it's a thought I'm having, and I think it relates to decision-making. One of the ways I think about anxiety, right? I always put it as I feel like what anxiety is, is something unknown about the future coupled with, our underestimation of our ability to cope, Mm -hmm. that we chronically underestimate our coping abilities because you can't cope with a worry. I think as humans, we actually cope very, very well with problems. But in this day and age, we have many, many more worries in the future, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes and we have problems in front of us and we, we kind of like forget, we always underestimate that, okay, if that thing does happen, like I probably won't enjoy it. It might be inconvenient, but like I actually am someone who has coped with hard things and, and I'll get through it again. So I'm curious if when you see this this kind of decision, you know, whether it's decision fatigue or decision handicapping or not making the decision, if you think that's a part of it, the underestimation of coping that people have or what what does get in people's way of making decisions? Yeah, it's some of the underestimation of coping. I think the other piece of it is that once you have made an active choice, you could be wrong. And people don't like to be wrong. And if you don't mm. really make the choice, then even though, yes, it could turn out badly, you haven't chosen to be wrong. And so I think this comes up like it came up a lot in COVID. You know, if I choose to send my kid to childcare and they get COVID, even if the chance that they got COVID was basically the same, whether I sent them to childcare or not. I've made the choice and then the outcome that I fear occurs, it feels like I chose wrong and we mm. sort of don't like to be wrong. So I think that's a kind of piece of it that that sort of committing to a, to an active choice 
gives us responsibility for the choice. And in part, I actually think that's why it's sort of valuable to frame it as two options, because then you you have to make a choice, right? There's sort of recognition that not doing anything is also a choice. And it doesn't let you off the hook for this, you know, for this idea that you've made a choice. You just kind of made it like by accident. Yeah. And then we're kind of back to that cycle of self-blame when we struggle. Like so many of us, it's almost like a possible it feels to disentangle. It's like, oh, wait, I could struggle or end up being in a hard situation and not blame myself. Because you're saying people end up blaming themselves because they think, oh, I made this decision. But they're almost two different things. Like I made a decision with the information I had at the time. Okay. Now I have different information. It stinks. And I can cope from here versus, oh, it's all my fault. (laughs) Exactly. No, I think we really, it's really valuable to separate like this decision was right ex ante and this decision turned out to be wrong ex post, right? So like I could have made the right choice and most of the choices we make or many of them, there could be something, you know, negative that could happen. But the confidence that comes with sort of having made the right choice can sometimes help us navigate through that. And so actually one of the things I talk about in the book, the think about like the example of an extracurricular, right? So like, you know, we decide to enroll our kid in travel soccer. um, And some of the time, you know, you've chosen to do that. And then sometimes it's really terrible. Um, You know, your kid hates the travel soccer. You like drive around all the time. Every weekend is spent at this activity. Nobody likes it. Everybody's unhappy. Okay. That could happen. Maybe it won't. Um, And one of the, the things that happens I think because people don't want to be wrong is they will sometimes re-up these activities or these things that were not good because by not doing it again next year, it's like saying I messed up last year. And I, I think there's a way to, to sort of push back on that a little, to, to sort of address that a little bit psychologically by like planning to revisit these things by saying, you know, we're going to choose this for this year and we are going to explicitly acknowledge we could learn more after this year. And then we are going to plan to revisit it. And then it's when you revisit, if it was a disaster, well, it's not that you were wrong. I mean, you know, maybe that wasn't the right choice in, in the moment, but you had planned to revisit. It was an experiment. Um, I think sometimes we can sort of trick ourselves a little bit with tools like that. I, I love that. Okay. One, one maybe last question. What is something that beyond the data, like beyond everything you know, you know so much that you struggle with as a parent or that the data just doesn't kind of come together to give you ease that, that, you know, that's still hard. So I find that as my kids have gotten older, um, you know, the data is, is it can, it can be helpful, but it is often sort of less, there's less of it. And the choices that we're making are much more specific to our kids. And I think there are a lot of things, um, with my younger kid in particular, where I am just not sure that I'm doing the like that I'm doing it, I'm doing it right is almost or like quite how to deal with the force of will that comes with a willful seven year old. Um, and what I found interesting about that is is like that almost the need for for experimentation around all of these different parenting strategies and kind of figuring out what works for you. So like the other day, you know, my son didn't want to. I don't know. He didn't feel good. Oh, he'd been on some antibiotics. So his stomach was bothering him. He didn't want to go to camp. And it's the kind of thing for us that can sort of very rapidly move into a, uh, a kind of place where like he's in his bed and I cannot like physically move him out of his bed and I, we can't go to camp and also I have to go to my job. And so it's like a little bit. And, and in that moment, it actually like 
like what I, what I did ended up working, like telling him like, we can be late. If we can be a few minutes late, can you, you know, sit, why don't you sit and eat a cracker? You do have to go to camp. That's not negotiable, but you can sit and eat these crackers. You can bring their cracker to camp. And like, we ended up going and having a very nice, like a very nice time. And we were not late because I always plan to be like 45 minutes early. <laughs> but that, that is not the like norm for that outcome. And, and it was sort of the fact that I was so happy about it, like called my husband. I was like, we had this and then it worked out. And, and he was like, okay, great. Um, but, uh, but it, it is it is a place where I have found it to be somewhat resistant to sort of broad data um, and even resistant to my own like attempts to collect personal data about what works in the in the moment. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that because also it just confirms that you are like every one of us oh, yes. <laughs> who, yes, who, you know, we have this knowledge and, and me too. And I always need to say it because, you know, my kids don't have some like Dr. Becky person as their mom, right? They have me with my triggers and my own stresses and, you know, um, moments that sometimes feel really good and sometimes feel confusing. And, you know, in some ways I feel like that's the data we all need as parents is like the data of knowing a hundred percent of parents find parenting hard. It's hard. It's just hard. It's just hard. Thanks for listening to share a story or ask me a question go to goodinside.com slash podcast. You could also write me at podcast at goodinside.com. Parenting is the hardest and most important job in the world. And parents deserve resources and support so they feel empowered, confident, and connected. I'm so excited to share Good Inside membership, the first platform that brings together content and experts you trust with a global community of like-valued parents. It's totally game-changing. Good Inside with Dr. Becky is produced by Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom at Magnificent Noise. Our production staff includes Sabrina Farhi, Julia Natt, and Kristen Muller. I would also like to thank Erica Belsky, Mary Panico, and the rest of the Good Inside team. And one last thing before I let you go. Let's end by placing our hands on our hearts and reminding ourselves, even as I struggle, and even as I have a hard time on the outside, I remain good inside.